Good morning. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me today, we welcome for the first time freelance writer Joe Robinson. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. And we also welcome, also for the first time, our friend from Paradox, uh, designer Thomas Johansson. Uh, project lead, actually, but thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, so Thomas, you are you are project lead on the upcoming Europa Universalis Four, correct? Yes, that is correct. How did you how did you rest how did you rest that game away from Johan? Well, the thing is that Johan is more like leading the entire studio now, and he can't really take on every project at the same time. But uh, of course, at the same time, it's he's not completely out of the project. This is still his baby, and has been since the late nineties, I think. So. Having wrested it away from him might be an overstatement, but everyone can't do everything themselves. <laughs> we were actually in Stockholm uh, last week for a huge, uh, I think it was at least 20 people, uh, multiplayer session of EU4. And uh, Joe, was in, Joe was in the game, as were a number of other people. Uh, our friend Paul Dean, uh, Fraser Brown, uh, TJ Hafer uh, were all in that game. And uh, it was a really fascinating experience. Uh, certainly, the one of the largest scale multiplayer sessions uh, I've ever had, and uh, a completely different way of playing a paradox strategy game. And I thought it was really interesting. I thought it'd be uh, fascinating to talk to uh, Thomas about and sort of reminisce with Joe about a bit here. Uh, so, you know, to to, to sort of uh, lay lay the groundwork though. Um, so I was I was the Ottomans and uh I made some I made some mistakes basically through uh lack of lack of aggression but uh so it was I don't usually play uh play the Ottomans I don't usually play basically uh anyone on the on the you know in the eastern side of Europe uh usually I'm strictly a western european kind of guy uh Joe actually you were Castile correct Uh yeah I was I um yeah, I was assigned Castile by the the mines that be in in Paradox, and it was an interesting. It wasn't it wasn't someone who I'd choose to play because I don't know much about Spanish history in general. And when I play games like this, I like to play a a country or like a nation or something that I kind of can connect with on some level. And Castile, you know, pre-Spain era, it was not really something I knew much about. It didn't really didn't really click with me but playing it was a very interesting game and it, it kind of highlights something that I firmly believe in these games where there's there's you can pl- there's the way you can play but just because you can play a certain way doesn't mean you should because there's something I like to think of as the integrity of the game experience and so I, I, I wasn't as aggressive either because I had a player as Aragon on one side a player as Portugal on the other and kind of all just got along and sort of played the game, although I did <laughs> mess up Paragon a little bit, which is quite funny. But um, yeah, no, it was an interesting, interesting country to play as. A lot of options there. Right, and toward the end, we were sort of all given our power rankings and who'd won and who'd lost. Uh, I placed, I placed fourth. Uh, I probably could have done better if I just killed more people. Uh, but Joe, I found your your path really interesting. You ended up uh, sort of finishing first in the game, and it sort of seemed to me like the way you won was kind of to avoid the whole European battle royale and just kind of go off exploring and play well completely your own game. Yeah, well, great. I mean, Portugal start off at the beginning with the ability to go explore the new world and colonize straight off. Uh, No one else in EU4, or especially in Europe, has that ability. So me, along with anyone else, had to play catch up with Portugal. But because I'd agreed to play nice with Aragon and France being played by uh, Adam Smith, 
it was kind of it was kind of my buffer to the north and even though there was some history between me and him because I messed him up in a previous EU4 session we kind of agreed to get along as well so it, to be honest my first session on the very first day was kind of boring because I had no one to fight no one I wanted to fight because I mean I could have gotten into a fight with Aragon and it it would have been a Pyrrhic victory, I think, because we're both kind of even. Aragon has Naples to draw on as a vassal as well. And, you know, no offence to the Portuguese player, you know, a lovely woman called Nelly. But um, I, I couldn't really count on her to back me up properly because she was just learning how to play the game. And that's one of the main reasons I left her alone. And, and similarly, France and Fraser as England kind of had their own thing going on. So I didn't really want to pick any fights I didn't think I could do well at. And it took me a while to get to that point. Cause, I mean, I mainly picked on North Africa, but um, Mor Morocco, Algeria, they're not exactly pushovers. So you kind of have to really fight for every territory you take down there. So that only left me basically the colonization game with Portugal. And so I raced off to America as fast as I could. I colonized where I could to kind of create stepping stones. Because right at the beginning, your colonial range is, you know, pathetic. You can barely get anywhere. Um, and I sort of I wanted to build an economic power base with which to start fighting on the continent, uh, the European continent with. And that I kind of got that towards the end. And I was looking for fights to get involved with, but um, obviously we we didn't have enough time. Like if I'd if I'd been given like another day or so, I think I would have progressed from a fairly passive economical nation to you know very active aggressive nation against well whoever whoever would have me really to be honest I didn't really mind who I fought against I just wanted to get involved you know I want to talk about the colonial system uh in just in just a little bit because I've always found that uh actually sort of one of just an aspect of EU4 I, I I've just generally been a little bit less interested in but first I'd, I'd like to go back to the very start of the game uh because one of the things that seems to have been drastically expanded is the use of uh, missions and objectives uh when when you first sort of sit down to your faction you're kind of you're, you're kind of handed a menu of national missions you can go out and go out and accomplish uh for uh usually a prestige reward uh maybe always a prestige reward i can't i can't remember an example when it was when it was more than that uh but you know it, but what i what i found really cool was that it's it's there's almost this tutorial function to the uh, the national missions where they're kind of you know you, you sit down and here's three things you can do and they kind of give you an idea of what direction your uh, country sh can move or will naturally move uh, overall. But uh, the the other nice thing about them is they don't necessarily force you onto one given path. There's, uh, you know, out of all those options, if you sort of you know pursue one line of missions uh, down all the way, uh, it could be that you end up completely detouring from you know what would be the natural historical path. Uh, Thomas, I was I was wondering maybe you could elaborate on, on the mission system and talk about the thinking behind expanding them. Yeah, sure. Uh, because, I mean, we had missions in, in EU3 as well. Uh, and then, I seem to remember, you just got one randomly, <coughs> and you could get fairly powerful rewards for getting these missions. But they sort of felt like, first of all, you got a bit annoyed when you got the wrong mission, or the wrong mission in the sense that you didn't want to do exactly that. Uh, and also, it felt like sort of like there was a system on top of the system. Uh, if you wanted to conquer a country, either you, you had a course on them and you did it the proper way or you just had the correct mission and what we wanted to do with the missions was to make them be more as you say a guide to the player as opposed to something you have to play with and I mean 
this game is a sandbox game. I, I like to say that a lot, and and that's that's a good thing if you know the history, if you played the game a lot. But if you're a new player, you can sort of feel a bit dropped in the middle of it, um, and and you can go in all these directions. But because you can go in all these directions, you have no idea where to go. And so we wanted to take the mission system and and sort of make it more of a guide to which path you can take in history or just in general. It's like, you don't know what to do, but hey, start with this and see what you can do. And in that process, we also wanted it to be that you can actually choose between more than one mission so you're not set completely on, on one path. And also we toned down the rewards a bit so that the way to win the game is still to play with the other mechanics. And if you do the mission, you will get a little bit nicer reward, but it's not the end of everything, right? Uh, could you talk about the uh, generation uh, system a, a little bit? Because, you know, I, you know, with the with most of my early Ottoman missions, even toward the end there, I was still getting missions that would totally make sense for the Ottomans, right? Conquer this place, expand here. Uh, but if I had completely, like committed the Ottomans to a you know trade pact a trade path say like just to hell with to hell with conquering the Middle East and, a and the rest of Asia Minor I think I want to be a Mediterranean trading power now is is there is the game going to res respond to that naturally like is it sort of is is it basing itself off the uh, choices you make even if they are really kind of uh, out there well there are basically two types of mission here. Uh, first of all, we have like historical missions where we, we sort of try to figure out, especially for the bigger, more important countries like the Ottomans, to try to give the players various paths that the country did take in history or that the country could take in history. But then, of course, we have like the generic missions, the, the things that are very similar to countries like conquer this, improve your trade in this area and these kind of things. And we, the generation system sort of takes advantage of the same things that the events and decisions takes advantage of. Uh, and for the last months, it's actually been quite a big focus for our scripting team to sort of go through all the missions and make sure that the triggers for the missions make sense and that it actually works. And we also have this kind of system where all the missions, you can't really see it on the screen at the moment, but <coughs> they're, they're divided into categories uh, and one for each power type, so to speak. So you will always have an administrative mission, a military mission, and a diplomatic or trade mission. So the, the game will sort of respond in the sense that if a mission is no longer valid, it will go to the next level and find a new, better mission. Uh, but it will also always allow you to, okay, I am now a trading nation, but I want to go more into war, and then there is a mission path for that. When I sort of took over the Ottomans, uh, it starts right after the Ottomans have basically uh, broken uh, what little remains of the Byzantine Empire, and so basically all you all they have to do is walk into Constantinople, and for whatever reason, I sort of got sidetracked with uh, pacifying parts of the Balkans and northern Greece, uh, and uh, you know, really kind of my my wor my, my sort of game breaking luck uh, where where it didn't where where things really started to go wrong for me was the Byzantines began making a resurgence uh, through the Mediterranean actually as uh, Venice kind of imploded uh, spectacularly. 
Um, so suddenly the, the the Byzantines were becoming an actual like a problem for me, and the you know I kind of ignored the missions at my peril. I kind of went I kind of went with a slow you know fly beneath the radar start, uh, and sort of imperiled myself by uh, taking missions that were more uh, long term, like uh, vassalize uh, a, na- a a small neighbor. Um, you know, annex somebody else. And I ended up sort of getting sidetracked into a series of diplomatic efforts. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, the, meanwhile, the Byzantines were uh, getting to that point where under the uh, system of conquest in, uh, in, in EU4, uh, you couldn't simply gobble them up. It seems like those huge, uh, those huge, like you can no longer just devour a ton of territory quite as easily as you could in uh in EU3 when your war score was high enough uh it it it, it there's there's now much more pushback coming from the game uh particularly when it comes to uh, a a a factor called overreach uh which i thought was a really interesting tweak and a really clever way of sort of um you know pushing back against the sort of ink blot expansion that you sometimes see the snowballing you sometimes saw in EU3 would you would you care to talk a little bit about overreach explain what it is uh you know sort of where you got the concept from and then uh how it's you know how how it works well the thing is that overextension uh, is it's kind of a system where you take the value of your core provinces uh, and then you compare it to the amount of non-core provinces you have. And, and that sort of represents the sort of tension between expansion and consolidation. And I mean, it's always been a challenge for this game is that how do we put a limit on blobbing uh, without actually just punishing the player by, by hitting him on the head with a hammer, right? Uh, and and we had this bad boy system that's been around since since EU one I think which you clock up first of first, I mean for EU one I think it was a hidden value even sort of like the AI will be upset with you if you go too fast uh, and then we brought it out in interface as we realized that you know it's one of the most important values in the game and the bad boy system did something similar to this i.e. stop expansion but it sort of felt like what it was it was a gameplay mechanic to put a break on expansion. Uh, and what we, when we made EU4, we wanted to take a look at this system and think, how can we make this feel more logical, f- make more sense? Uh, and we started to look at, you know, what are the external effects that can give you? Because to stop a player expanding, you don't really... First of all, you don't really just want to play to punish him, a uh, game to punish him. You want other nations to punish him. So... We took really what was the external part of bad boy and said that instead of getting the bad boy value, you get something we call aggressive expansion, which is something different again, uh, which actually gives you negative relations between with other countries as you conquer more. And there are modifiers, say, if, if they're on a different continent, they don't really care about what you do in Europe. Uh, if they're the same religion as you, as you and you conquer more of their own religion, then... Uh, they get more upset with you. And then we added sort of like the internal version of the expansion thing. And, and we sort of thought about, I mean, we always had this problem, the, the, the tension between smaller compact nations and huge sprawling empires. Why do huge sprawling empires have these problems? And how can we get it into a game? And, and we sort of came up with this concept. We had the core provinces, right? Uh, and we had the fact that you now buy core provinces with power points instead of just waiting for them to appear. 
so we simply added the mechanic that that you get an inbuilt tension between the amount the percentage of your nation that is core provinces uh, so it works it's very simple really in, in how it works is that when you get the non-core provinces your overextension goes up and having overextension will make it more difficult for you to trade make it more expensive to buy stability uh, it can even give you revolts especially it gives you high revolt risk in the provinces that are overextended so that if you conquer say Serbia as, as the Ottomans and you're really overextended your revolt risk in Serbia will be really huge until you get the problem under control so with these two systems, in, instead of just this, this kind of break system, we had have something that to me feels more like if you go on a conquest spree, other nations will, will hate you and try to form coalitions against you and these kind of things, right? And if you, gobble up lo- if you gobble up very much territory fast, you will have difficulty in controlling this territory and that will sort of spread back to the rest of your country and that it becomes much more difficult to rule this unwieldy construction until you spent the time and effort and power and sort of brought it back in again. I don't know, now I keep talking, Aaron. I don't know if yeah. I answered your question. <laughs> no, you, no you, you, you totally did, and I thought it was a, uh, I thought it was a really clever I thought it was a really clever use of use of the system. I thought it was better than better than bad boy, right? Because the, the thing about like in EU three when you were kind of uh, when you were kind of a jerk to the rest of the world, what you got was an infamy rating uh, that was acting as kind of a kind of a drag on your on your relations. It was you know it, it sort of worsened your worsened your reputation and uh, made things harder uh, on the diplomatic front. But the problem with that was there was a point, and for some powers, it didn't take too long to reach that point where you no longer had to care. Right, where where effectively you were you were you were so stable, armed to the teeth, that it didn't matter if you were sort of racing through Europe, uh, you know, just executing every last German state. Uh, nobody nobody could lift a finger to stop you, uh, and so really quickly, infamy just became sort of discounted as the normal cost of doing business. Whereas, and, and I don't know, I, I never got to sort of superpower status in in EU four, uh, but certainly at no point did I ever feel like I could totally afford to ignore. Uh, overextension and uh, and when and re- when my reputation started turning, uh, my God, did they ever turn? Uh, the the fact the fact was that you know with a cu- after a couple diplomatic mistakes on my part, uh, I was kind of uh, I, I I was kind of in deep trouble uh, with basically all of my neighbors. Yeah, and I think the big thing with overextension is that it's something you play against. I think the bad boy system when when it came out right when I started playing. EU1 and EU2 back in the day before I worked for Paradox, I thought it was like a really genius system to sort of get that kind of break on expansion, but it was a bit too crude, right? And you, Because you couldn't play with it. You, you got Bad Boy, and then the Bad Boy sort of ticked down over time, and then you got some more, and it was sort of like just manage the level. Now, it's something you play with. You conquer country, and then you consolidate and reintegrate it, and, and it's not it feels much more to me like a, something you play the game with. And then the diplomatic side of it, as, as you mentioned, right? It's, of course, it's still a challenge for the AI, and I think the AI will be much better handling it. But then you have multiplayer, and in, in multiplayer, the whole external break on expansion becomes very much different, because there you have other players. And that sort of goes past the relationships and the aggressive expansion penalties and these kind of things because when you have other players you can sort of goad them into accepting your your conquest spree yeah 
so so the diplomatic mistakes becomes you know talking to the other guy and and then you sort of like okay because i've I've seen this in in a couple of multiplayer office multiplayer games where a certain country I watch the map and it just grows and grows and you think that hey where is the break on his expansion but that's because he's managed to cons- convince everyone around him that he's not dangerous at all so don't watch me <laughs> surely though you're just kind of because um, I, I, in EU3 and past games the bad boy you get it and then it would take down to get it and tick down on. even though I really like how you have to really work to wrestle these new conquests under control it's just kind of delaying the fact that eventually you're um, aggressive expansion penalty just ticks down, and then you can start again. And it, it's like you, you can, you can basically, you can still blob, but you have to creep it essentially, don't you? So you, the, I'd say oh, oh, there's one way of looking at it is that you've only really delayed the problem as you know, completely gotten rid of it. Well, the thing is that people want to expand and blob, so you can't really. There is a limit to much how much you can punish them, and of course. There is an element of creeping as well, but the thing is that since the systems, both the aggressive expansion and the overextension, is a bit more dynamic, you can game them and not just wait for them. For example, since the aggressive expansion works on relations, it's not uh, the sense that everyone hates you because of it. It's more that you have friends and allies. They will, they they liked you before, but they will dislike you because you're you're expanding very fast. But they can still be your friends, right? And then you have your enemies, and they will really hate you. But then, of course, you you will always have the thing that when you c- conquered half of the world, there is no, you know, the only thing I can do is hit you on the head with a hammer, or I can let you win the game, right? So, something else that I, I really enjoyed about these systems is that, and this was, and this actually uh, really made me understand the uh, the, the point system uh, we're working with. Uh, much more than our previous multiplayer session did because we, we only had a couple hours with the game. Um, what do you call the point system, by the way? Because I wanted to call it the uh, the administrative point system, but that's only one one type of the, uh, one type of the points. Monarch points is that what we're yeah monarch them? points or monarch power really? It's what we call them. Yeah. So you know it, when when I first saw it, it, it was sort of I thought it was like okay, this is this is basically just uh, tacking up by another name, basically. Um, the, the you get you get points in administration uh diplomacy and military and you can do you can use those to unlock new technologies uh that you can like that will let you build new buildings across your empire or upgrade your army uh across the empire uh, you can also do other things like spend some of those points to uh you know you know to like recruit a general uh, you spend some military points uh, that kind of thing but you know when when things were running smoothly and and certainly for the early part of my ottoman game and when i played france in our session in iceland i thought okay well it's it, it's a good effort but it, you know it, it, if you think it's just kind of obvious right like why wouldn't you unlock attack you know the, the, basically you're just you've now given me three points that will three sets of points that will count up and then i'll unlock a new tech so i didn't really entirely understand the role they'd be playing until things began getting a little bit dicey with my game as the ottomans uh what what started to happen is those those over those over those overextension uh penalties started to hit and uh my my uh, relations with other powers were coming apart, and I had uh, several provinces now that were sort of occupied territory, uh, ethnically and religiously, uh, deeply unfriendly uh, to my Ottomans. And at that point, 
I realized that you can also use these the same pool of points you can also use for things like um, changing changing a core, uh, adding adding a province to what adding a province to one of your core territories to remove the uh, core penalty uh, on it. Uh, you you can you can spend uh, points directly on sort of improving your realm stability, uh, and there are points where and and of course. By spending those points, you're going to tech up much more slowly, and so you know I was I was really impressed with uh, how you know how much depth and how many interesting choices there are within that system. Uh, I was sort of caught off guard, I guess I'd have to admit, Thomas, because at first it seems so self-evident. Well, of course, this is just progress. Uh, why wouldn't you like progress? Uh, well. Unfortunately, there are times when your empire is such a mess that uh, you you can't progress, and uh, that was it was it was a really interesting side effect, uh, you know, to my expansion and something that I sort of felt that again, like previous EU games had maybe not created enough for you to do. Like you just have armies running around, uh, you know, killing off rebels whenever they spawned uh, or something like that, or you do a, a long term charm offensive uh, against your neighbors and get them back on side here it felt like when things were uh, when things were tough I was sort of forced to rob Peter to pay Paul yeah and I think that you know the, the points really shine there when it comes to it it makes everything a choice because I mean the points in itself they're, they're extremely simplistic right you have a monarch the monarch has skill that generates points you can hire advisors so you can sort of translate a bit money to points if you want if you say but since everything ties into the points everything you do will be a trade-off versus everything else and then you have categories and i have to admit we have still have some balancing to do so that the load on different points types becomes the same right if you're not a trading and diplomatic power you will you will at the moment swim in diplomatic points um and 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 things like that but everything becomes interconnected and as you say right if you just take up then that's what you do right and then you can have idea groups and depending on what you want to do with your country there are different idea groups that you can pick and they all cost different types of points and then that becomes in itself an area of management if you are as i said swimming in diplomatic points but but you're really scarce the, the administrative and military points are really really scarce uh, then it can either both make a sense. You, maybe you want the military idea because you want to fight war. On the other hand, if you select the diplomatic idea, you can actually take uh, level up in the ideas much faster. And, and I mean, like when you fight rebels, for example, it's either you have good armies and you fight and you beat the rebels, or you can negotiate with them. But you can also click the province. I don't know if you realize that there is a suppression option where you can use military points on a province to get the revoltists down for example temporary so you always had these kind of choices i was going to say that i um i found the idea groups i mean sometimes i think that there could be more to spend my points on because like, at the current playthrough i'm doing at the moment as, as england on single player um, i'm swimming in administrative points right now and i literally have nothing to spend them on so i'm just waiting it to tick up and obviously if you tick up too quickly in a certain tree it costs more and more points to unlock the next level because you're racing ahead of the the kind of historical technical uh, technology curve so but the idea trees especially like for example in an early early playthrough i did i chose a military uh, idea tree and I started unlocking a couple of those kind of subtexts as part of that idea group and then I kept getting my ass handed to me in wars because I hadn't been keeping up with the overall military tech and all my neighbours had you know the the better troops than I did so that there is a kind of uh, 
a kind of game there. Like sometimes I kind of alternate between doing a, a sub tech and a main tech and a sub tech and a main tech, or sometimes I rush ahead. It kind of depends what kind of game I'm playing. But I think you're right in the sense that there might be um, some balancing left there to do because you know. And you really have to think about there what kind of ideas you pick because, as you said, you, you're swimming in administrative points. For me, the administrative points is always the points I really, really need. Because first of all, you build cores with the administrative points, right? And then you have a couple of things like buying stability uh, and uh, reducing war exhaustion, for example. Now we're talking about actually moving war exhaustion to another idea, uh, point type. But you have these kind of things. But if you, if you play it quietly, if you don't have that many rebels, if you don't conquer any new areas, you don't need to core anything, then administrative points. But what you can then do with your your administrative points is that you can think, okay, now I can unlock a new idea group, and then I pick an administrative idea, so I have something to do with these points. Uh, but then I have to say with the military ideas, the interesting thing with them is that, I mean, tech, you level up tech, right? For every tech you get, everything gets better. But the military ideas, you have like the offensive ideas and the defensive ideas and the quality ideas and these kind of things. And to get the most benefit out of them, you should really try to look at how to sort of combine it with the natural strength of your country. Like, for example, if you're Russia, you have lots of manpower. Either you can try to compensate the manpower and use quality, but you can also really overdrive the whole thing and pick uh, the quantity ideas, which will give you more manpower and even more manpower. And then I think Russia has some natural ideas that give you even more, and all of a sudden you have like a million-man army or something. So there's, there's like... What I like with the, with the whole points, ideas, conglomerate or whatever you call it, uh, is the fact that on the surface it's so simple, but once you start to combine it with the actual ideas and, and how the points look for your country and what kind of country you're playing and the natural ideas, there are so many choices there. So, the, you know, optimizing your country is, is something I'm still learning and I'm, I'm actually part of the, partly designed the game. So. Yeah, I, I, was, I also enjoyed how it uh, made my country much more vulnerable to the vagaries of, uh, you know, who your, who your child is, right? Or what sort of... What, uh, made my country much more vulnerable to succession issues. Uh, because the complexion of the game can completely change when you go from a monarch who's kind of a, you know, kind of a prodigy and strong across all areas, uh, and that's kind of what the Ottomans start with. Uh, is is uh, I, I think is what Mehmet the uh, second, but is, is a very strong ruler, a good administrator, good diplomat, and a great great warrior. Uh, but when you get unlucky with your heir, suddenly, you know, those admin points, which were so plentiful, uh, you know, just an hour earlier, uh, you know, suddenly you, you just, you, you can't do anything, uh, you know, on the, on the domestic front. And at which point you're basically sort of praying for good advisors and desperately trying to hunt advisors who will, uh, who will mitigate your weaknesses. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's really something we wanted to bring in this game. And I mean, we, we made Crusader Kings 2, and that was a game where you were I mean, everything went up and down depending on who your king happened to be next time. And, I mean, this is not Crusader Kings 2, right? But we wanted to make it so, in the sense that as the game progresses, your challenge should change, right? So you have this awesome military ruler, and then you can build this military nation. But then you get, like, a, a ruler that isn't a military ruler. Uh, and even if you built up this huge war machine, it becomes... A new challenge, or at least I hope it will be a new challenge to sort of 
continue to be a military power, whatever you do, when you have a king that's, that's not very good at it. Uh, and that, that was really something we, we wanted to do when we made the game. Yeah, and uh, it certainly, I think in EU3, I felt like, uh, yes, it could be bad when a, when a crappy monarch took the throne. Uh, but after, you know, again, after a certain point, the, the state overall was so stable and so capable that it could kind of uh, just shrug off uh, the, the effects of an incompetent ruler, no matter how pernicious uh, uh, his, his, his incompetence was. And then advisors were sort of just playing this uh, role as, you know, just a group of slight bonuses to pick off a menu and kind of hire and fire at will. Uh, Whereas here, I I definitely felt a little more uh, dependent on the quality of uh, both both the role, but also the the quality of the guys coming through the court. Uh, My question is... Uh, you know, in some ways, uh, European Universalis is always sort of the story of the rise of the modern state, right? Uh, the sort of leaving medievalism behind and uh, embracing modernity. And part of that story is, well, just what I said, right? Like, the state does become more resistant to the effects of a bad ruler, uh, which, you know, is is good for the state, but maybe poses a, a gameplay challenge. Uh, how do you... You know, uh, like, how do you, how have you addressed, because we didn't get far enough in the game to see, but there there's a tendency, right, for things to sort of just get more stable, for the task of ruling a great nation in Europe uh, to get a, maybe a bit easier, a bit more obvious as uh, more technologies come online, as sort of infrastructure improves. Uh, how do you, how do you keep throwing, uh, how do, you, how do you keep throwing twists at the player uh, when the you know tide of progress is actually making for a less interesting uh, strategic challenge? But I don't. I'm not sure if if it actually becomes like that because I mean the rulers will still have an important challenge to the player throughout the game, uh, and and of, and the, your challenge will of course be as well the other players and the, the fact that you get monarch points from rulers, for example, sort of puts a limit of how far ahead you can zoom compared to your competitors. So, I mean, your state will have better infrastructure, you will have a better army, you will have all these kind of things, right? But your your opponents will as well. But what, what will change over the game is really how specialized your country becomes. You can pick more ideas, uh, you can you can choose which ideas you have, you have different technologies, and you conquer new territories, and, and these kind of things, right? Uh, and, and your opponent will do the same. I mean, an extreme example is if you compare, say, Russia to to, uh, to Prussia, for example, mm-hmm. uh, where Prussia, Brandenburg, that becomes Prussia, have all these ideas that with discipline and, and the abilities of the army and the quality of the armies. And then, if you're a Prussian player, you can, say, choose quality ideas, and if, if people don't respond to that, your, your, your armies can be virtually unbeatable. But then you have the Russian players who have lots of manpower, and he can build buildings and pick ideas, and he has his natural ideas that will really give him lots of manpower. And the challenge for as for the end game becomes more: how do you deal with the fact that the playing field is more even when it comes to what the country is at the start of the game? But at the end of the game, you need to deal with the fact that you have Russia that has a very specific character; they have lots of troops. You have Prussia, whose armies are virtually unbeatable. How do you deal with that? I mean, when it comes to the monarchs, they will still be important throughout the game, even if you develop your country. That They will still be the basis for generating the points that you need to core provinces, to fight rebels, to, to take the next tech level, and so on. 
So the challenge is really in the opponents, not really, you know, it's not like you build up a country and, and then it's, that's it. The, the game sort of will continue. And, and when you get new monarchs and they have different skill sets, you will sort of have to deal with other nations in different ways, depending on what they can do. That's assuming Russia forms in the first place. Yeah, I of mean, course. The player, the player just about managed it in our session in Sweden. but He did manage it, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. Towards the end, I'm just saying he just about got it in time. That's what, and he was yeah. working towards that specifically. Like Fraser formed Great Britain quite quickly as well because he was specifically working towards it as well. And that's what I've just done in my single player one. Yeah, in, in most of our, our testing game, Russia actually do forms these days. But even even with all those step tribes, yeah, you don't really need the step tribes. It's mostly the small uh, Muscovites or the small states that you need. I don't remember exactly what the decision is these days, but you need basically to unite the Russian peoples. But then, of course, even if, if it's not called Russia, uh, the Russian states share national ideas with what becomes Russia later. So you might actually see a Muscovy who sort of gets into the big powerful nation and have this. And I mean, Russia was, of course, just an example. You, have, you can become Lithuania. One thing I can't say about the steppe peoples, though, is that uh, Doan played, uh, played the... Uh, what was it? The Uzbeks. Was it? He was the Uzbeks, wasn't he? The Uzbeks, yeah. yeah. Uh, he played the Uzbeks very well, and, and he sort of managed to... The, the, uh, the hordes have this kind of bonus to cavalry, and then he picked ideas that give you more bonuses to cavalry and these kind of things. So, I think... And, and, and Johan also has a lot of experience in playing this game, so I think that the step hordes might have looked more dangerous in this multiplayer game than they usually do. <laughs> Okay, so a couple things I've learned about Johan uh, during during this during this play session. One, gigantic troll. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, like I am amazed that with all the multiplayer games that you guys play over in Paradox, that nobody has marched over to his desk and strangled him to death. Uh, because I remember after sending his army packing and basically fighting a war to a standstill, and everyone else is taking white peace. I'm like Johan, white peace. And he tells me, no, I never do a white piece. I either win or I lose. Well, Joan has his principles when he's playing, but that's, oh I think that's God. kind of a thing with, that's fun with multiplayer, is that, you know, the countries have a character that, that they're given by their unique ideas and their, the, the, the geographic location, these kind of things. But then when you add the personalities of the people you're playing, and especially like in the office where uh, where, where you sort of, have we've played a number of games that go on for quite a long time you start to feel that i mean you're building a reputation that i never white piece so if you go to war with me that's you will win or lose right that will influence the game choices and sort of the game gains another depth and you know as for strangling uh, and that's not really allowed because he's the boss <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the I did not know about the uh, "we'll never take white piece" uh, thing. Uh, so that was it was infuriating and galling to have to concede defeat uh, to make him go away. Uh, when you know, I'm I'm pretty confident that at that point in the game, another season or two of war, and I probably could have stalemated him and maybe even started rolling him back. Uh, although at that point he was just sort of riding through. I would have had to fight through a bunch of uh, eastern provinces, and it would yeah. be very difficult. Playing to the horde states the is kind of difficult, and we've done a lot of tweaks since the multiplayer game as well, where you sort of they get get these kind of succession crises, 
uh, that every time the king dies you get these subhorts that pop up and want to take the throne from you, your various cousins and whatnot. So the Khal Drogo effect. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's so it, it long term it, it's it's quite difficult to fight the hordes. Their strength is that you can really build a truly powerful cavalry army. The weakness is just keeping the whole thing together. Surely, though, in a, a single-player game, the best way to, I don't know, form a strategy of that is just to let the pretenders win. Because it's not like Crusader Kings 2, where you're playing a dynasty, and if you're the last member of your dynasty dies, it's game over. You're, you're, you are the country, and as long as the country is still there, it, doesn't, it literally doesn't matter who's in charge or who your leader is. You just let the rebels take over, impose their will, and then you just continue as if nothing has happened. Surely that's well, how you deal the, with that. The thing is, you get a couple of penalties, but uh, when you lose, you lose prestige and these kind of things, and they tend to burn down the country in the process. But, I mean, of course, you're right. They can win, and and then you continue to play from that. But there are a number of penalties and stuff if you actually lose. Do you think EU4 does enough to sort of let the player know or kind of give enough incentive so that it's okay to lose in a situation? Like it's okay to lose the odd province or to have to release a vassal? Because everyone wants to play the perfect game, right? They want it to go exactly the way they want it to go and if they don't, they just reload a previous save. Um, I noticed the Iron Man mode in there, by the way, and that's quite a nice touch. But uh, um, do, do you think there's enough that EU4 gives enough feedback to say, look, it's okay, you're going to lose. It's okay, don't worry about it. You can come back. You know, just keep playing. Well, I'm, yeah, I don't know if it's enough, but it's it's certainly something we're we're looking at and trying to to get something into. And I think that there it is a game where the most fun you can have in the game is really when you know how to lose, right? This war is going badly. I'm going to give up a few promises and then I'm going to take them back. Uh, and I think, for example, one way to, to play the hordes well, because they have all these succession crises, is really to sort of give up to the rebels, kind of often, not only by by accepting their victory and accepting their version of the king, but also using the, the rebel negotiation mechanic and simply say that, fine, you get local autonomy. And I hardly get any taxes from half my country, but it's still my country, right? But then it is difficult to sort of... It's it's sort of like a learning curve almost for people to realize that you haven't lost when you lose as a province because, you know, people have a tendency to see these games as kind of a thing where I start with four provinces. And I think that was a problem for, for Crusader Kings 2 as well um, in, in terms of teaching the players this, that... You start with four provinces, then you have five, then you have six, and then 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 you have seven. And if you you sort of go back to six again, you're pissed off and reload the game. And I that in in EU4, I think there are enough things you can do about it, especially when it comes to using using power to mitigate bad situations, so that you can rescue most situations. But teaching the players how to do that that is still a challenge. I think we all know that one of my pet peeves is is the is the real is the uh, constant reloading of strategy games, and I think paradox games in particular are ill served by that. Uh, I mean, this is this is really a series. Uh, well, like, I mean, Crusader Kings is is a perfect example where like, you know, stuff going wrong is really I think more than half the fun, right? Uh, you know, it's these yeah. these are games where when things are every, everything's going according to plan, uh, they're going to follow actually kind of a 
uh, a predictable and repetitive pattern. Uh, it's it's the things blowing up in your face. It's the uh, gambles you take that bl- that uh, completely d- fail uh, that I think are are really kind of cool. Like I think something that makes a lot of people uh, reload the game right is when you find yourself sort of forced into a personal union because you made a, you made a bad royal marriage and your prestige went to crap and uh, you had no heir. So right. suddenly you're sort of subjugated. If you wait that out, it's frustrating as hell, but it's also this period of like wait, like laying the groundwork for when you decide to fight your way to independence. Yeah, and I think the, the key to that is actually, or there are several keys, but the key to that is actually making the way back fun to play. Uh, and to sort of like, I mean, Crusader Kings 2 had this kind of thing where, you know, your king die, you lost half your country, but you still have claims on that part of the country. So now there's a new game in taking it back again. But, but another thing I think is actually, because there's, there's an element of psychology here, right? If I were to, to continue for my poor, for, poor province country and take a fifth and then lose the province, I get annoyed and because it's so easy to reload, I will just do that, right? But if I couldn't, I would continue playing. And that's, I think, where, where Iron Man mode play becomes such a brilliant idea, is that I choose to make this game in Iron Man mode, so it's not something that's forced on me. But when I play it, I mean, I, I loved playing the, the most recent XCOM game, except the last level. But, but yeah. up to that point, <laughs> yeah, but it, it, in the last level, it sort of stopped being the same game. It was some sort of, I don't know. But, and I think that a lot of people in the office actually played XCOM, and that's why, why we came, when we come up with the idea that an Iron Man mode is what we need for this game, right? When, when you take the conscious decision of making your game an Iron Man game, you sort of you're in for the long run, and you will get much more out of the fun stuff in the game because otherwise, the designer can design the game as fun as he wants, and he can make like all the gameplay things fun, and but the psychology of 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 the gamer will make it so that he won't live through half of the fun because because of reloading, right? So I think that Iron Man mode, and giving the players that option and sort of nudging them. For example, we, we're we're gearing most of the achievements. For, for Iron Man mode. So nudging them to using this mode will sort of give the player much more fun because they will not reload and then you will adjust your play style and play more safely than you would have otherwise. Um, so, Joe, I wanted to talk about your experience with uh, colonization and sort of, uh, you know, taking to the new world because my experience was kind of the classic EU uh, European knife fight, right? Just like pounding the crap out of your fr- your friends and enemies. Uh, but you 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 sort of struck out and uh, you know and, and struck gold uh, apparently. Uh, but I was wondering if you could maybe talk us through the uh, colonization procedure, some of the differences that you saw from uh, from EU three and. Uh, just to start you off, one thing I, I heard uh, Portugal complaining about was that um, uh, it, it sounds like the native peoples are maybe a little more resistant to colonization in this. She was talking about a a uh, sort of an outpost in Africa that got annihilated uh, by by the by the locals, uh, which which seemed which seems pretty cool. Did you did you have trouble pacifying your uh, your new holdings? Um, it's only trouble if you don't really know what's going on, because essentially each uh, uncolonized province in 
the various kind of new world areas has a uh, a native like a native number so how many natives are in that province they have an aggressiveness factor and they have a ferocity factor which basically just influences how likely they are to like try and kill you when you go there like um even if you have a conquistador just exploring the new world and not colonizing like every time you go into an uncolonized province there's a chance like a small native stack will like spawn and try to kill you whilst you're in there um I think maybe the natives are a little bit too uh, easy to defeat, maybe, in that respect, because once you kind of know this, literally a stack of three with maybe a good leader and all your colonists are safe for all time ever. But yeah, when you send a, a colonist to try and colonize um, a, a province, like based on their ferocity and aggressiveness, there's a chance that the natives will rise up and try and destroy the colony. And if they do, then the colony kind of disappears um, it kind of goes back to being white and you have to send the colonists back to start again but again like once you kind of realize what's going on um, it's very easy to sort of deal with that in a sense like I my main problem with the colonization sort of thing in general is that um, maybe it's a bit too easy like you have like the native faction tribes like the Incas, Mayans, the Huron, the Cherokees but um, th they don't really uh, I haven't been attacked much yet um, in, in terms of the multiplayer game Portugal was the only other colonial power colonizing and so really there's no, there was no one else there was no other European powers to contend with either so it's basically a, that that part of the game for me was just a steady methodical progression of colonizing and then developing those colonies and just to reap in the money essentially I think the most pr trouble I really had was with pirates which are annoying as hell but you know, they kind of, they were kind of the only real challenge I had after a while. But um, yeah, it's just because because you really have to think strategically about where you want your early colonies to go because the colonial range is so short. You basically have to stepping stone. So my route actually, I went down the east side of Africa, colonized something there, then got enough tech to bounce over to South America, and then from there bounced upwards to the Caribbean, which is where all the most profitable colonies seem to be. So if you can colonize the Caribbean, you will be swimming in gold for the rest of the game, essentially. Well, not swimming, but you'll be very well off, and it serves as a very good economic power base. Like, um, I, I colonized the Caribbean as Spain, um, in the multiplayer session and in the England single player game I'm, I'm doing right now I immediately rushed down to the Caribbean as quickly as possible and again colonised it and I, th I think maybe because I wasn't playing on a hard difficulty setting it could be a little bit harder there could be say either another western power also with the ability to colonise quite quickly or maybe the native factions to be more aggressive in stopping you from colonising these the kind of native lands but um, yeah, it's, an, it's definitely an interesting mechanic. It's very, um, I, d I didn't really play much at EU3 in terms of the colonization games. So I can't really specifically compare, but uh, I, have, I can compare it with Victoria 2, which I played a lot. And it seems a lot simpler, actually, to kind of get your country to a place where you know you can colonize. Because in Victoria 2, you had the life rating. And to be honest, I'm, not, I'm still not sure what you need to do to improve your life rating in Victoria 2. So I never really participated in the scramble for Africa much, mainly because the countries I picked um, didn't have the life rating and I didn't know how to increase it. So I just kind of ignored that aspect of the game. But in EU4, it's a lot, it's a lot uh, plainer sorry, in terms of colonial range and what you need to do to improve that like it's mainly the diplomatic tech tree that improves your colonial range and then there's a couple of um, uh, idea diplomatic idea trees that also kind of focus a country on being a, a colonizer essentially and once you ch set up those um, 
you know, it's only a matter of time before you start spreading, essentially. Yeah, I think the balance thing with colonization is that the challenge should really come from other colonizing powers because, I mean, it's such a big choice to go for early colonization because you forego another idea group and go for Quest of the New World to be the first one there, right? And for countries like Portugal and Spain, for example, or if you play England and just ignore Europe, um, you should be able to use that, that idea to get a head start. And if you get too much resistance from other people it might not be worth so much then you can be france and and conquer half of europe and then go off win the colonial game because you already won so much many armies and so much power so i see what you mean right that that it can feel a bit more like progression but you you sort of have a limited time frame we're supposed to have a limited time frame before other people start to compete with you and try to get their own colonial empires and stuff like that uh, and I want to say, I think in Victoria too, I think it's technology actually that improves the the uh, what kind of life rating colonize, like stuff like uh, medicines and machine guns and whatnot that you need to colonize. Yeah, I I, I kind of I sort of knew that, but I, I, looking at the technologies in Victoria too, it wasn't none of them said oh life rating. Well, maybe they did, and I missed it, but um, it just wasn't that obvious. But um, yeah, I can see what you mean. Um, I think in a multiplayer game, the colonization game would be a lot more interesting because you have a lot more potential rivals who know how to, um, I don't know, optimize the colonization progress. Because, you know, um, in England, you know, the, the closest place I can reach is Greenland. So I go up there and then I bounce down as f to America as far as I can go and then bounce down again just by always going at your maximum range to sort of spread yourself. But the AI, I think, could maybe exploit that a bit more. Like even Portugal was mainly in South America and they didn't really do much. So I don't yeah, know. Well, but the AI is something we're working on at the moment. So so we're going to, to put a bit more effort in teaching it. I mean, we had, for example, up to until today, the AI had a big problem with, with uh, conquering uh, the native tribes. Like the historically, Castile went off and conquered the Aztecs and... Uh, up until the fix that I did today was far too expensive, for example. So that's something we're working on, at least, because the AI should, at the very least, be as good as you at, at finding colonies and going off there, because the competition is supposed to come from other European countries and not from the natives, really. You know, we're we're, we're coming up on the uh, coming up on the end here. We got a few more minutes, but I kind of want to talk about. Uh, Sort of, uh, we t we touched on this when when, uh, when when Fraser when Fraser Brown and T.J. Hafer were on the show uh, about how special it is to play these games multiplayer, and I want to talk a little bit about you know sort of uh, you know the, whether or not this 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 session sort of changed our relationship uh, with Paradox Games. I mean, uh, obviously you guys uh, f you know flew me out to Stockholm and uh, you know showed me a good time in Europe. So you know, ten out of tens all the way down now. Uh, you know, f forever. Uh, you know, I got your back, homies. Uh, but but <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> uh, I, I always sort of I always sort of looked at the multiplayer tab. As this sort of like you know, here there be dragons. Uh, you know, good luck, buddy. Good luck trying to find you know four or five people to play this with. Um, you know, just just because of just because of the timing issues. And I, and I will say, our multiplayer group, uh, as Joe can attest, we've tried valiantly to even get short form paradox games. Uh, you know, finished, and we can't do it. Uh, just trying to organize a, a small group of people to play is how is hellishly hard. But I just gotta say, from my perspective, like 
I had never really viewed Paradox games as truly like appropriate fodder for multiplayer just because of the scale of time they operate on and how long it takes just to play a single-player game and how many factions there are. But seeing it... I mean, first of all, see, seeing you know 20 people involved in one LAN game uh, was remarkable. Uh, it was a... It... it it felt completely different from any other strategy game I've ever played, I think. And uh, so it was, it was a unique experience, and it's, it's one that I think in the future I'm going to want a lot more of. Uh, I don't know, Joe, how did, uh, what did you think of it? Uh, it? It's definitely changed the way I kind of perceive Paradox games, because I've been playing them for like four or five years now, and I love them. But I'd never gone multiplayer properly to Iceland, I think, actually. Um, I mean, historically, I mean, I'm sure Thomas can tell us more about this, but historically, the multiplayer backhand has never seemed that good. Like, it's only really, like, in, in talking with Johan and some of the others, it's only really in this game that they've really started to look at multiplayer tools and just making that area sort of better to interact with, just in terms of basically getting the game set uh, together. I mean, I think I tried doing um, EU3 once, and I had to use Hamachi just to get the connection going, which is actually a, a kind of caveat we should add to to our great session we had on Sweden. It was a set-up local area network with 20 computers all in the same room. Um, I would love to see 20 people all connected over an internet connection just wirelessly to see if, if it works just as well. But yeah, it's definitely uh, it's an illuminating experience and it's so, so much fun. Um, just just in terms of like talking to the other people and trying to negotiate with them. And as like you say, with Johan being an utter troll, I mean... You know what I was like in uh, March of the Eagles, uh, you know, France versus Prussia, that kind of stuff. And, you know, the players in single player, it's all about making sure your positives outweigh your negatives in order to get the AI to do what you want, essentially. But in multiplayer, no one has to do what you want. They literally can just ignore you for the whole game. Like Even if it means they're occupied for the whole game, they can just keep you in there and keep you having to technically be at war at them, which can actually stop you from doing so many other things. Like if you wanted to form Great Britain, you couldn't, you can't if you're at war. And if you're at war with me and I just will never peace out, like no matter what, you, could, cause you can't make me. You, you actually, I have to be the one to press the button and you can, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot, it's a lot of, I take a lot of pleasure in uh, kind of denying people what they want sometimes. It's, uh, right. But then, of course, that leads to us exterminating you in March of the Eagles because it's like, okay, nobody can trust Joe, and oh, I see what Joe's trying to do here. He's not going to peace out. Well, we'll see what sort of pain he can take. Yeah, it, it's sort of like I said before. If you build a reputation consciously, it can really help you. But if you get a reputation of being that guy who just declares war against everybody, we have a couple of people at the office who have a very difficult time shaking the reputation that they will just declare random wars. Yes, my programmer is waving at me over there. <laughs> but, I mean, multiplayer, it has sort of grown on us what kind of multiplayer experience this game is. And, of course, like, like you said, right, we had, it started with EU3, the first game, back in whenever it was, 2005, maybe. Uh, we, there were some technical issues, and we worked, we sort of ironed them out and managed to get, like, get it fairly stable, but still it's sort of like there were some connectivity issues and and how you deal with firewalls and these kind of things and but we still had lots of fun with it in the office and it also turned out that way that having these kind of office multiplayer games that we've been having ever since EU3 really have sort of turned out to be such a good way of both having fun with the game but also finding balance problems 
that isn't really directly related to the AI and stuff, but these kind of things where people are trying to abuse the game and trying to go up against each other. And when you play multiplayer, as opposed to when you're sort of testing the game in single player, you you tend to, or most people tend to play a bit more competitively. So you get away from these kind of thing where I'm just testing the game now to see what happens, because instead you're trying to win, right? Uh, and and as we played these games, we sort of realized that it's so much fun here, but, but outside of this office, this is conceptually a single-player game. We On the forums, we have some really lively communities that play a lot of multiplayer. But So, so for this game, we, we really thought about how we should be able to help people. And for example, we've adopted Steamworks uh, so that we've instead of trying to do, do uh, our completely our own multiplayer infrastructure at the base we're sort of for example using Steamworks to be able to find other players and to help you with firewalls and these kind of things so it should be a very much more smoother experience this time around when we're done and now I believe I've heard you guys talking at least about uh, hot join yeah uh, there is there is hot join in the game and it's going to be there uh, we're still having some issues to iron out because the there's, it's an old code, right? And right. we haven't really thought about this before. But, I mean, we're we're well on the way there, and it's going to be hot join, so that you can sort of drop out and come back into the game as, as you will, sort of, when you can't really you can't really wait for this guy who can't wake up or, or this kind of thing. So we're going to have a hot join, and we're also going to try to have, like, a standalone server where you can sort of just turn on the game where people can come and go as they will. But I think most importantly is the sort of the much smoother ways it is to actually find other people to play and to ha- handle the technical issues such as firewalls and these kind of things. You should be able to like start up the game, see who's playing and play the game instead of just having to do matchmaking on the forums and, and right. long in advance and these kind of things. Yeah, it, it, like trying to get our March of the Eagles games together on Google Plus is like disarmament talks. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's just uh, unbelievably difficult to get everyone on the same page, uh, especially when you're playing across a bunch of time zones. So I think some of those features will be uh, well appreciated. Uh, you know, the the last thing I you know the, the what I we just realized I forgot to mention uh, is you know we didn't get into trade at all. And uh, certainly, I found trade to be a really fascinating part of this game, uh, particularly, uh, you know, as, as the Ottomans, I was sort of trying to steer as much trade through uh, Constantinople as possible, and then sort of siphon off of that. Uh, but, you know, I, I wanted to, first of all, I'll check with you, Joe, to see what the effects on your trade were as you became a colonial power. Did you start, uh, did you start rolling in the bank? I did, yeah. It wasn't until I got those Caribbean territories that really the the money really started flowing in because you start to... Um, I, I, I don't really know all the specifics of how trade works, but I, I assumed when I started discovering like sugar and tobacco and all those exotic products that were being produced in the colonies, that some of that translated into trade, which I was funneling back to my home territory, and that's when the money really started rolling in. Um, it's, it's not very, uh, I think there could be a lot more feedback in the trade system, because even though it's very simple, um, like essentially in every trade node, you have a binary choice between building a transit hub or building or maintaining an office. And obviously in your home uh, hub, you always have an office, but in terms of the hubs around the rest of the world, it's not always clear whether you should be tr- uh, moving it to your home hub or just having an office, you know, 
overseas and then maybe funneling trade locally there it's it's not always um i think heinrich explained that if you were the dominant trade power you should probably maintain an office but if you weren't you should send it back home or something like that i yeah, the the general idea is that you should be you you should try to send as much trade home. You get a big bonus for taking out money because basically there are like two actions you can take. Either you can take out money from a node, or you can make sure that more trade flows from that node. Uh, and of and then the same thing, the, the the trade flow thing will also influence how much you steer in different directions when you start to compete with other countries. Uh, so like the basic idea is that try to steer as much home where you can because you get a big bonus for taking out money. But then when you find places and you have lots of merchants and you sort of have control over your trade network, you can sort of build new homes even though they won't give you as much money. Uh, and I think that <coughs> the the thing you discovered over there in the Caribbean is another advantage of going early into colonization because there is no other trading power there. So you get like 100% of the power. So everything that gets traded over in the Caribbean gets set home to your home country. And, and after a while, the idea is that you're supposed to start to build like a network of nodes where, where everything, the value of all these trading provinces all over the world sort of feed into your home place. Uh, and I agree, we could, there could be a bit more feedback, but the, the system is in itself is, is, is fairly simplistic in the sense that it's more that how you play with it that becomes advanced where you sort of have to compete with other players, where you have to send up, set up fleet bases and put fleets on trade patrol and that kind of thing. But I think that you were one of the, the only people that really had a proper trade network set up in a game. Yeah, I, I, I tried playing with it, but again, because I didn't have enough merchants, it was an early game when you're limited on merchants, it's kind of hard. I mean, three or four, I think, is like the hardest number to deal with in a sense, because um, using my England game as an example, I've got the home hub. And then I um, colonized Chepesky Bay in North America. And uh, that had a direct link to London. So I sent that to London. And then I went down to the Caribbean. But that that has no outgoing kind of trade network that goes directly to London. So I decided to send that up to Chepesky Bay. And then since I also had the North Sea feeding into London, I figured, well, why don't I just maintain an office in Chepesky Bay instead and have you know, two offices, each with a, an, an additional trade node being fed into them. Maybe that would be more, you know, profitable. And you know, I'm still earning a lot of money in this single player game, but I'm not sure whether I'm earning more doing it one way than the other, which is, I mean, in my Castile game, again, because I, I was Spain, it was easier to have everything going towards um, uh, Seville. Seville, I think, is my home network in playing as Castile. I think I think the trade-off there becomes a bit more, more about what kind of competition you have because you will if you get the money to London you will get more money in London and if you dominate the London trade node it's always better to send it home there right so I would also in that case if you dominate the London trade node I would send the Caribbean up to Chesapeake Bay and then off to London in the Castile game it becomes a bit more of an interesting thing there because you're sharing your home node with Portugal right <coughs> and you get like a 50% bonus to taking out money from, uh, from in your home node as opposed to an office placed otherwise. So if Portugal has 50% or more of the income in your home node, it sort of pays off to put the office in the Caribbean and sort of cheat Portugal out of that money. But if you sort of can split it, you can sort of find yourself in a strategic position where you and Portugal 
are sort of feeding off each other. You colonize the Caribbean and send the money home. He colonizes around Africa and send the money home. And both of the countries become richer. Uh, and I mean, if you go back to the England case, for example, uh, it's fairly simple to set up a trade network to say that the Caribbean goes out to Chesapeake Bay and Chesapeake Bay to London. Fine. But then if the Spanish player shows up in Cuba and starts to try to direct the trade back to Seville instead from the Caribbean, then all of a sudden it becomes competition and a game to sort of which country can steer the trade which way and where can I get more colonies and bases and these kind of things. Yeah, it's it's definitely a much uh, cooler trade system than uh, we had in EU3 where it was kind of it basically you know it kind of ran on autopilot and there there wasn't much uh, manipulation of of trade to do the you know trade is just sort of something that existed uh with not a with not a ton of input from the player and here i think being able to sort of uh sort of sort of steer sort of steer trade and influence how it flows across the world uh it, you know creates some really cool dilemmas and i particularly like how they sort of uh sort of circle back into the strategic game like the example with portugal for instance is i mean you like after a certain point you have to be thinking well what if there was no portugal yeah exactly you know? and and the interesting setup you get with spain and portugal here is that you can actually find yourself in some sort of equilibrium situation where Portugal has lots of African colonies uh, and Spain has lots of American colonies and Spain could easily take out Portugal but then on the other hand you will have to deal with this whole colonial empire and stuff that and when you both feed feed money into the same node you're both profiting so so that say in the sense that Portugal makes money for you but I mean the trade system is really the point is the the feedback loop into the strategic game uh, as you notice, probably Joe, is that when you don't have that much competition, you set up a good way and you sort of improve the value of the trade, but you don't really have to change much. It's when when other countries come and compete with you that that the, the sort of the fighting starts and the dynamic is, and you have to choose, right? Do I steer from this node or that node? Do I have an office here or do I steer here? Okay, this country is blocking me out. For example, the Mamluks have a position where they can strangle quite a lot of the trade to the Mediterranean states. And all of a sudden, states like both the Ottomans and Venice and Genoa needs to start looking at the Mamluks and see, what can we do about this guy so he lets the Indian trade continue through the straits? And then, of course, Portugal finds the other way around and steers away from the Mamluks altogether. But the, fe- the feedback loop back in strategic game really is the trade game here. You know, I think that about does it for our discussion of the EU4 multiplayer session. Uh, so, yeah, so Joe won with his uh, colonization, with his colonization game. He became basically the master of the new world by, what, the, by 1500, basically? You were, you were kind of, yeah, you were kind I wouldn't say master of the new world. I had the most colonies there and I was the richest. But um, I, I think sp- speaking to Johan, Fraser also did very well as, as England because he formed Great Britain and he was starting to colonize as well. And it, I think it wasn't f- if it wasn't for the fact that his country basically collapsed when he uh, dropped out due to uh, the technical hiccups, I think he may would have been a strong contender for first as well. Um, yeah, but it, yeah, it, I, I had the Caribbean sewn up, basically. <laughs> yeah, and you got lots of money from being there first. But if, I mean, if England had sort of come over there and started a situation he could have translated his european power into to competing with you over there and then that would have completely changed the game i think 
yeah, and I ended up in in fourth place. Uh, I don't know if I would have been able to hold on to it. Uh, I got ganked pretty hard at the end. Johan had created a coalition against me. The funny thing was, uh, I had about a hundred thousand uh, enemies uh, sort of camped across my uh, camped across my empire, trying to take different castles and stuff. Uh, but I also had about like seventy thousand men in the field and about another seventy thousand in reserve and a bottomless reserve of cash. So it would have been interesting to sort of play that war out and see if I could have, uh, you know, played Frederick the Great, I guess, against uh, the huge coalition against me. Uh, but you know, my my overall. Um, you know, it's it's weird. I, I feel like when we're talking about games that haven't been released yet, games that are still in beta, you know, there's a lot of hedging. You know, like, well, it looks good. We'll have to see. Uh, but, I, you know, it was something that came up a lot during... Uh, during our time in Stockholm was sort of like New Paradox uh, doesn't release this game yet. New New Paradox you know, takes the time to uh, really kind of polish uh, EU4, whereas Paradox of a few years ago would have you know, shipped it back uh, back in you know, January, uh, you know, the build we played in Iceland. Um, so it really is in this in this sort of position where it's it, you know this already looks in many ways. Uh, obviously, we saw the technical glitches uh, you know the second day, and we've experienced some glitches uh, you know with the Steam, with the uh, copy we've got on our Steam accounts. But it, it already looks like a game that you know could have been released, and uh, you know we'd probably have been fairly happy with. So I think it's for for me at least it, you know i kind of look at eu4 and unless uh un unless uh, thomas and your team uh really screw up badly uh in the next few months i don't know you 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 get drunk and start messing around with the code base or something uh it it looks like eu4 is going to be pretty much everything i want in the eu game well thank you thanks a lot for saying that it really makes me you know, glad to hear that, and I will try to keep the team away from the booze and the code at the same time. Uh, that'll do it for today's show. Um, my thanks to Thomas and Joe for uh, making the time to uh, have this conversation, and my thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this episode together. Uh, we will have more Paradox-related topics coming soon. I warned you about this uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, and we will hopefully be talking with, uh, you know, Oh, you you may have already heard the show uh, we, we'll be doing with uh, Fred Wester and Sham Strajani, uh, but w there's definitely a show coming up about sort of Paradox as a publisher and, and how they're changing as well. Uh, but for today, this has been Three Moves Ahead, and uh, Europa Universalis is coming out uh, when, Thomas? I'm not entirely sure if it's been completely set a date for yes, but Q3, I think, is the... at least what I know. <laughs> All right. I have a date uh, when I'm supposed to be finished, but I I'm... I'm not the one who sets dates, so I can't really say about the Q3. <laughs> right, so keep your eyes peeled for uh, European Universalis Fork uh, this fall. Until next week, goodbye, everybody.